The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for Building Better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back. To a Solid 7 podcast, a better than average podcast, if I do say so myself, and I almost always do. I am, of course, your moderately humbled host, Kale, and here with me this week, just uh, honored to be able to introduce um, soldier, author, speaker, trainer, uh, the, the accolades could go, the titles could go on and on, but uh, just an absolute delight to have a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman with us here this week. Welcome to the podcast, Colonel. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, uh, honored to be on board with you, brother. <laughs> we- uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the podcast revolution. You know, back in the day, we had three networks and one or two newspapers, and 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 if you didn't make them or one of the half a dozen national magazines, you couldn't. But today... We've broken that logjam. And, and back in the day, I was on 60 Minutes in 2020, and it meant nothing. A five-minute soundbite, they controlled what you said. This one of, the, one of the positive things in our society today is this podcast revolution. People providing deeper, deeper levels of knowledge and people seeking deeper levels of knowledge. You know, instead of a 30-minute clip on, uh, on, on, on whatever the, the, you know, the website is, these people are seeking a one-hour block of... Uh, of intellectual input and uh, and and they're not satisfied with a five minute sound block and that's a good thing. You are, are and the people listening here, uh, they represent something positive in our society and I, and I'm proud to be on board with you. Well, thanks, Carl. It's it's awesome to have you and couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm such a fan of long form co- podcasts myself and that's uh, just kind of what speaks to me in a podcast format because you can't if you want to dive dive into a subject, you can actually do that. There's time to learn. There's time to put some meat on the bone. And then in an interview format, and, and particularly today, uh, with with all the division and so much money goes into marketing and positioning and spin on a long form podcast, you can't hide. And I, I've honestly, I've gotten to the point where I've said on the podcast any number of times, uh, you know, looking through a, a political lens, if I don't know if I'm willing to vote anymore for someone who hasn't spent three hours in front of. Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman or all oh, these guys wow. who are non-traditional, but they're yeah. they're incredible interviewers. They're incredibly intelligent, incredibly open-minded, and you just can't hide from them for three hours. You can't do sound bites oh. for three hours. It's oh, not possible. Cool. And that takes even a step deeper. I never thought of that. You got to tell me up front now. Uh, I look around. Where does the term "solid seven <laughs> come from? I, I look online. I mean, like you judge a girl, you know? You say, "Well, she's." You know, she's a solid seven. Oh, okay, so she's above average. Where did that come from? Uh, it's it's a little self-deprecating. I was, the podcast name. I've I've explained the concept on here before, but I don't know if I've ever told the whole story. I was actually uh, we're affiliates with a couple of incredible companies: uh, Jocko Fuel, Origin Maine, uh, Tuttle Twins. 
And one of the ones we're proudest of, though, is GORUCK. I've been a massive fan of the team at GORUCK and of their uh, gear and events for a long, long time. And I was in Tampa with some buddies doing a 26-mile GORUCK event. So it was their 26.2-mile their star course in Tampa. Side note, if you're going to walk 26 miles through a city, Tampa's probably not the one you want to do. There's prettier cities to walk oh. through. <laughs> but, oh. but we were doing it in Tampa, and we were hanging out after the event. And uh, I was kicking around the idea of starting the podcast. And uh, we threw out a few different names, and nothing was really ringing a bell. And one of the guys said, ah, you know, what about Solid 7? You know, like you're, like you're better than average. And I just really liked the alliteration. And I also, like, I just love a little bit of self-deprecating humor. <clears throat> the goal, of course, is to be a 10. And if I'm being completely honest, as I will with you now, I think we're probably a little better than a 7 anyways. <clears throat> but it's just that concept of, you know, maybe you're out at a party, you're at a work event, you're at a church event, and all gussied up. On your best day, you're a six. You're probably you're probably not leaving with a ten. Occasionally, you find somebody with some bad eyesight, and uh, you know you can outkick your coverage. But you can probably lead with a solid seven. And uh, hey, that's that's us a little better than average. There you go. Well, you know uh, the self-deprecating humor. Uh, I'll tell you a little story about that. My favorite story on that. I, uh, when the war began in Afghanistan. It was Canada's first shooting war since Korea. <clears throat> and they wanted to do it right. They did everything they could think of, including bringing me to train the first unit deploying. And uh, one regimental commander told me, you know, we, we came back for the first time and, and we asked the lads, well, well, what worked? And they said, Grossman. He told us what was going to happen and told us what to do about it. And they basically repeated that cycle with every deployment and, and almost all of the Canadian troops that, that deployed to Afghanistan and many, many, many of our own troops. I, I've had the honor to train. Uh, the Ukrainian translation of my books on killing on combat have come out. The U.S. Embassy bought a thousand copies to distribute Ukraine troops. And I'll be going to Ukraine shortly to, to train their folks. But the Canadians have just got the self-deprecating humor down. <laughs> And, uh, and I always had fun uh, telling them, you know, a, a Canadian sent me an email when the war began. We're determined to support this war with, with all of our resources. We have an a, a aircraft carrier and support group. We have, a, we have two wings of F-16s, and we have, we have three divisions of infantry ready to go into the war. Unfortunately, after the exchange rate and the defense cuts, that comes down to a Mountie and a canoe and a flying squirrel. <laughs> 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 I, I tell them, you know, that you've done a way lot better than a mountain canoe and a flying squirrel. You know, they've, uh, they've, they've, in this war, you know, we'd far rather have a, a, a battalion of Canadians and a division of Russians, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, that we, we need people smart and fighting smart and spiking well. And for 20 years, they've done us proud over there. All of NATO has been over there doing us proud. And uh, uh, that, Canada is the only nation that's militarily kicked our tail twice. You know, during the American Revolution and 1812, we tried to invade them and they kicked our tail. Yeah. So, you know, they got, uh, they got some credit there. Yeah, ran us right but, out of uh, Dodge. That, yeah, that self-deprecating humor goes a long way. Hey, I want to talk to you about Goruck. Yeah. And, uh, and just give you a little info on that. You know, I'm, my subject is combat, interpersonal human aggression, history, and in-depth study, and then pull it all out and put it in my books. 
And a man named S.L.A. Marshall, retired as a brigadier general uh, in World War II, he was, uh, he was uh, the official historian of the European front in World War II. He began in the Pacific and World War II, did some amazing work. When we were 100% wartime veterans, when everybody was in the fight, he wrote, and they knew it was true, and they worked with it. But he said, the single best way to prepare troops for combat is rucksack marches. He said, you know, combat is 1% terror, 99% sheer boredom. Yeah. But the war is won in that 99%. To have the grit to gut it out with that ruck on your back. And, 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 and really, I, I spent a military career. I've only had one person ever beat me on a rucksack road march. Uh, but, but that was my specialty. Mm-hmm. And it was all about accepting pain and being able to push through pain. There were people who could outrun me. There were people who could better shape than me. But just that ability to have that sheer grit. And I want to just put a big shout out to the whole Goruck community and anybody who's thinking about pushing themselves. I honor the marathoners. You've got to honor them. But try it with a rucksack on your back. And the world is a different place. And it is one of the most valuable things that we can do for personal grit and determination. And I think it's a growth industry and uh, something we, we could really get our hearts behind and, uh, and support. So, so good for you being back there for those folks. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we've been just such a fan uh, of them for so long now. And then uh, big news actually came out uh, from Gowarak this week. They're actually now... Uh, the official apparel partner partner for all of CrossFit. So both footwear and apparel for all the CrossFit games now go rucks their official apparel company. So pretty, pretty cool news for them this week. Yeah. uh, They've been working closer and closer together over the years. They've uh, CrossFit has added rucking into uh, their games uh, as a category. And so to see that relationship develop, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a good fit and, and very cool to see. All right. So, well, well, let's get in a little bit into how one finds themselves in a position of, say, you know, addressing combat units just before they, they go off to war for the, for the first time in decades. Uh, you know, I was joking with you a little bit off air. It's not uh, really, I, I think, maybe the expected uh, to to bring on somebody who, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, training law enforcement, training uh, men and women for combat, writing, writing books, uh, literally on combat. Uh, to find out you were born, I would think born maybe in the South for sure, probably Texas, if I had to guess. And uh, that misses the mark by an entire continent. <laughs> yeah. I, I was born, as you know, in, in Frankfurt, Germany. I was the son of, uh, of, uh, of military forces so in Germany uh, in 1956. Uh, my, my, my mom and my dad was, a, was a, an MP, military police officer. He just always thought of himself as an old cop. Uh, from the very beginning days, and uh, uh, and uh, it was uh, you know we we left there early, but my dad's from Minnesota, my mom's from uh, from Illinois, so again off by quite a chunk. We spent most of our life uh, in the Midwest, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, and uh, and it was a good ride. Yeah, and it was a good year. We moved a lot, uh, and back in those days, um, you got a lot of fights. You know, and, and today you get in a fight, the next day somebody brings a knife or brings a gun. That back in in those days, you get in a fight the next day. Your friends, yeah. you know, and uh, uh, and and uh, it was a different world. You know, I got expelled a couple times for fighting, but it's still 
Uh, and every time we moved, you had to fight. And there was there was always a bully. So I grew up hating the bully. And the people would say, why do you have to do this? Why is this necessary? I, I grew up in the martial arts mm-hmm. uh, just because I wanted to confront bullies. And not just the ones messing with me, but messing with anybody. I wanted to be the one that stood up and said, hey, you want to mess with somebody, mess with me. And, uh, and uh, I turned 18. Uh, 50 years ago today, I can tell you where I was. Uh, I enlisted in, uh, in 1974 when I turned uh, 18 in August. I lied about my age. I was 17 years old. I was working on Wildcat oil rig in, uh, in the Nebraska Panhandle, January, February, March, in the winter of, uh, of 70, uh, 74. Uh, I turned 18 and joined the Army and never went south, you know, never went north again. Uh, but uh, working 12-hour shifts, seven days a week on a Wildcat oil rig, the single most dangerous thing I've ever done. Retired. I mean, stopped that when I turned 18, became an Army paratrooper, infinitely safer. Those boys couldn't spell OSHA, you know, let alone, yeah. let alone comply. And uh, it was a wild time, dodging, literally dodging death. I've always had good reflexes and grew up in the martial arts, and it kept me alive, dodging death. But uh, uh, entire military career uh, came in at 74. Vietnam was over. Uh, our war was the Cold War. Our great achievement was that, that, that the Russians never came across that border and trying to sustain ourselves and carry ourselves. But I, I, I enlisted in the 82nd Airborne in uh, 1974. We had, we had Vietnam vets all around us. And we were ready to deploy all the time. Yeah. You know, we stood up here and, and, and never really did, you know, but we, we wanted to know what combat was like. I was a real reader as a kid. I read everything in the library about what it's going to be like, and nobody would really say what combat was going to be like. And, uh, and these Vietnam vets were all around us, and they wouldn't say. Yeah. And so I, I, I thought what was the heart of combat was the act of killing. And fast forward, I went to OCS, uh, uh, Army Ranger, uh, infantry officer, you know, Sergeant Grossman goes up through the ranks, and uh, I, I selected to, to teach at West Point. Uh, I became a psych professor in my final year, assistant professor. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to get a grad degree, and I'm going to study the psychology of killing. Uh, not, just, not just the, you know, homicide, but, but lawful killing. Yeah. I actually coined the term killology. And, uh, you know, criminology is not about teaching people to be criminals. Killology is not about teaching people to kill us, but understanding the factors and enable and restrain right. killing. And, you know, uh, people look at our society they, and the, in the news, look at that terrible crime in the news. That proves that mankind's a killer. Well, maybe, but, but that's an outlier. That's one in a million. We're a nation of a third of a billion people. Yeah. That one terrible crime you heard about today is one in a third of a billion. You explained to me the 99.999% of our citizens that didn't kill anybody today. Explain that. Yeah. Divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents, you know, lifetime of provocation. Less than one in a thousand citizens will even seriously attempt to take a life. Explain that. And, and that's killology. But we know how to turn it on. We know how to turn it off. And that's what my first book on killing was about. But as I began to teach, I got out in 97 after 24 years. I've been on the road now over 26 years, a couple hundred days a year. I think I'm the only person certified to teach cops in all 50 states, every federal agency, all of our military. And I realized that 
for those who fully prepare themselves, killing's just not that big a deal. And people are kind of offended by that. But the World War II veterans, they weren't broken by what they had to do. You know, uh, what was really at the core was what I put in my book on combat. Uh, auditory exclusion and slow motion time and memory gaps and memory distortions, and then what happened afterwards. So I began to really intensely study human violence, not just the act of killing, but the overall dynamics of human violence. And everything kind of flowed from there. Uh, I became really aware that uh, we we had a a terrible time getting people to pull the trigger in World War II, Uh, 15 to 20% of the individual riflemen would pull the trigger. Now, cruiser weapons almost always fired. There's a, there's a group dynamic. Uh, key weapons like the BAR or the, or the flamethrower almost always fired because everybody knew if it didn't yeah. fire. But the individual riflemen, if somebody stood over his shoulder and told him to fire, he'd fire. But left to their own devices, only about 15 to 20% will pull the trigger. And it was a training flaw. We taught them to shoot bullseye targets. We have no known cases any bullseyes ever attacking our troops. <laughs> and if you've been in the U.S. Armed Forces since the Korean War, you never once shot no stinking bullseye. Yeah. A man-shaped silhouette pops in your field of view. You hit the target, target drops, stimulus response, stimulus response. It was straight out of B.F. Skinner, like, like, a, like a pilot in a flight simulator, like a kid in a fire drill. Modern training made killing a conditioned response under discipline to adults. And oh, by the way, the video games are doing the same thing to our kids. Yeah. Uh, On Killing came out in 1995. I predicted a, a generation of mass murders were coming, that we would see mass murders uh, uh, committed by children at ever younger ages, like nothing we've ever seen before. And now here we are. And killology is, is part of the equation understand how and why that's working and what we can do about it. There are many, many factors involved in restraining killing and enabling killing. But if you just take the lid off a little bit, it it goes out of control. You know, the area under the curve, if you just shift that line a little bit from way out at the end of the curve to just a tiny bit closer, the area under the curve expands exponentially. Right. And and that's what we're seeing across our society in this tragic, tragic violence uh, there is not some evil new gun out there. Uh, and, and, and we made 7 million M1 carbines in World War II. They flooded the market. 20, 30 round magazine, semi-automatic military weapon. In 1948, any kid could walk in the hardware store and buy one. Up until 1968, any kid in America could order one through the U.S. mail, and, and they would deliver it to his house. You know, thank God that's not still the deal. We're good at the changes. But there's not some evil new gun out there. There's something else happening. And, and you think like a scientist, think like a detective. What is the new factor? One of my books is Assassination Generation that goes in far greater detail. As was invited to the White House as part of President Trump's roundtable on violent video games, invited back to the White House to brief the vice president. In both cases, had a chance to put one book in their hand. The book I put in their hand was a assassination generation. So so that's kind of just a broad spectrum across it all. And in recent years, I've had the honor to kind of capstone it with some uh, some faith-based books, which I think are truly important. Yeah. And there, there, there is not any problem with being a cop or being a soldier and being a man of faith. Uh, you know, the World War II guys were not hypocrites. 
you know, they're, they're, they're pastors and chaplains and rabbis and priests didn't preach, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill. The war began. They said, ah, kill those guys. It's cool. We, we changed our mind. No, no, that's not what happened. Uh, lawful use of deadly force in war and, and by law enforcement to protect innocent lives has always been supported by 99.9% of our Judeo-Christian history, and people don't understand yeah. that. So I, I wrote the book on spiritual combat. And I thought, you know, maybe some of the people who read on combat, read on killing, so what's Grossman got to say about this? And then it can give them a, a bit of peace. And, and, and every class I teach, I, I tell them, you know, this is not about religion. It's just an existential question every human being asks. And our first responders, I train them all, fire, EMS, cops, uh, military, they see terrible things. And they can't help but ask, how could a loving God permit these things to happen? And that's a fundamental existential question. And the answer is really simple. We are not God's puppets. Yeah. A loving God would not use you as a puppet. A loving father would not stand over you and, and, and influence every decision for a lifetime. Well, we've all heard if you love something, let it go. If it comes back at yours, that's how much God loves us. He loves us enough to let us make our own decisions. And that means a lot of people make bad decisions. And you say, God, do something. He said, I did. I sent you. Mm -hmm. And that's where it comes down to. Yeah. Uh, on spiritual combat, on spiritual warfare. My book just came out January 1st to, to follow on, uh, understanding that in the end, the big picture, you know, everybody dies. Every nation falls. Every son will die. But eternity continues. And if you've got a remote idea, if just a faint idea, there might be something after death, then it is infinitely more important than anything else. Yeah. And it's worthy of a little study and a little time. And, and like I said, the capstone on a lifetime has been my books uh, on combat, on spiritual combat, Bulletproof Marriage, uh, Christian Book Award finalist, 90-day devotional, Sheepdog and Spouse, uh, really, really been successful. And and we just keep driving on. My, my book came out earlier uh, last year, was on hunting. And if you hunt, if you want to know about hunting, it's being turned into a textbook for college classes, anthropology classes. Uh, uh, hunting is who we are. It's what we do. I've always wanted to have that trilogy on combat, on killing, and on hunting. And you can't understand combat. You can't understand killing. You can't understand us as, as, as human beings until you understand hunting. If as a species, we existed for 24 hours, up until the last six minutes, all we ever did was hunt. It's what we're wired to do. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's the answer to wellness, and it's the answer in many ways to, uh, to, to wildlife preservation around the globe. These vast amounts of money these crazy hunters will pay pay for the game wardens and pay for the, the safety to keep the wildlife safe. And the, the hunter, the hunter uh, kills this animal at the end of their life cycle. And, and, and we seek that animal at the end of the life cycle, you know, with the biggest mane and the biggest horns, and, and give them a clean ethical death. And by the way, <laughs> death by old age and nature is a hideous, horrible yeah. death. Uh, death by old age and nature, rodents and insects eat you alive for days before you get before you finally expire. Yeah. Uh, and and so that the whole picture of hunting can be viewed completely differently. We think this is a revolutionary book. 
Uh, so just keep driving on uh, uh, and, and making a contribution, kind of like you yeah. with the podcast, making a contribution in the way the Lord leads, you know, and, uh, it's fun to see how it all plays out over the years and where you end up going. Oh, absolutely it is. And, you know, on hunting in particular, uh, you know, no pun intended there, but we've had uh, both Robbie Kroger and Cody from Blood Origins on the podcast before, and those guys are doing incredible work, uh, incredible storytelling around conveying the truth behind hunting and the role that it plays societally, the role that it plays in conservation and uh, just great work. I'd love to remind me when we get done, because I'd love to connect you with those guys. If you haven't ever before, uh, you'd be right up there, alley over there, but uh, we'll get you a copy. We'll get one uh, on the the mail to you, but you know, uh, people say, well, well, you know, I'm a vegan and all right, I don't, I don't believe in killing anything. Well, in order for you to have a loaf of bread, we exterminate billions of rats and mice around the granaries every year. Yeah. If we did not exterminate rats and mice by the billions every year, they would get into the grain elevators and the granaries. They would reproduce exponentially and we would all starve. In order for you to live, you've got to kill. Uh, you met somebody else do the killing for you. You know, they kill those billions of rodents. You know, your body right now is killing millions of microorganisms. When your body stops killing, you start dying. Mm-hmm. And, and so finding our place in the cycle of life and harvesting your own protein and, and looking at the reality of death and knowing that sometime this will be me. I will be uh, no longer I- in this mortal body. And, and, and hunters truly are in tune with nature and tune with the, who we are and the cycle of life. Uh, I tell people it's, it's a path of wellness. It's a path of contribution uh, to back to wilderness with the, the deer tag and the hunting license and the money that you spend. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. Our civilization is, uh, is preserving uh, that we desperately need. So it's so cool that you've had good people on board talking about that. subject. yeah, well, and it's, it's funny, you know, I was uh, born in Illinois. I didn't spend a ton of time there, but have been back a lot, have extended family there. You spent a lot of time in the Midwest. If you've, if you've never been around a freshly tilled field, the first thing that happens after a field is plowed, my, my grandpa actually, he, he worked as a machinist for John Deere in uh, the Quad Cities in Illinois. And by the time he retired, he has, had worked his way up to be their chief plowblade engineer with no degree. Um, so wow. grandpa had some chops. So, uh, you know, so I'm familiar with the plow. And if you see a freshly tilled field, the first thing that happens afterwards is the birds show up. And it's not because they're eating seed that was put down. And it's not because a bunch of worms were churned up. It's because of the absolute carnage of rodents and small mammals that's left behind, both from tilling and from harvesting. It's it's not you can't harvest without it. There's no way around it. Not at scale. And we got to stay. And for health purposes, you're a vegetarian. You're vegan. Good for you. But for those who choose otherwise, uh, don't judge them. You don't understand that that uh, they choose to harvest their own protein and do their own killing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We're not judging anybody one way or the other, but there's value in getting in touch with those deep roots. And, uh, and, and, you know, we were, when we talk in the book, for most of the history of our species, we have been in the middle of the food chain. You know, uh, in India, we, we quote some data that uh, in the early 1900s in India, in one decade, over 100,000 people recorded being killed by tigers. Those are the ones we knew about. 
So, you know, 100,000 people being killed by tigers just in their early night in one decade that we know about yeah. in one nation, India. Uh, we were in the middle of the food chain. We have the capacity to be predator or prey. We have the chisel teeth of a rabbit. We have the grinding molars of a grass eater. But we also have the gripping fangs of a predator and the forward set eyes of a predator. And throughout history, we've been predator and prey. But it's no fun to be prey. We don't like to be prey. <laughs> Nobody likes it. We want to be that the, the predator. That's why we love dogs and cats. Dogs and cats are predators. They're meat eaters. Yeah. They're, 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 they're sight hunters. And, and we love their company and we love their companionship. So that, that is really kind of the foundation for one of the, the most viral things that I've ever done. Yeah is introducing the concept of the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog. And, and people can do with that. So, well, you, you, you need to be a predator. Oh, oh that's evil. Well, well, your dog's a predator. Oh, well, okay. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, the, idea, the, the idea that, you know, there are, there, there are wolves out there. And, and the sheepdog is everybody who's determined to protect their loved ones, to take their part of the world, their little meadow, and make it safe. That's the sheepdog and dedicate themselves to protecting. Yeah. And there are no ultimate sheepdogs. There are no ultimate sheep. There's people up and down the scale. And we just, we just encourage people to take a few steps further up that scale uh, to become the protector, to become the sheepdog in your part of the world. And we talk a lot about the things that people need to know, but the first thing they need to know is how desperately bad the situation has become. Yeah. Yes, the number of people that don't kill are, are astronomical, but the ones who do kill have have exploded to frightening levels. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's worthy of talking about uh, medical technologies holding down the murder rate. Year after year, we're being lied to. Oh, the murder rate you know, went up this much. But, but medical technology is holding down the murder rate. Yeah. You know what? We got one great data point. UMass Harvard study, peer-reviewed journal, came out in 2002. Uh, between the 1960s and the 1990s, medical technology cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. That is, to compare the murders in the 90s to the 60s, take the murders in the 90s and multiply by a factor of three or four, and the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology since then are astounding. Yeah. And, and, and imagine if somebody said, well, your grandpa made 25 cents an hour. You make $25 an hour. You're 100 times better off than your grandpa. <laughs> your BS meter goes off because we all know about a little thing called inflation. Mm -hmm. We all know you cannot compare money over any period of time without allowing for inflation. And you cannot, you cannot measure the number of dead people, the murder rate, over any period of time without allowing for medical technology. Yeah. And it, and it, and it's bad, brother. Well, and it's crazy bad. It's it's ironic too because we owe so much of that advancement to combat. I mean, tw <laughs> I 20, 20 years at war has saved more lives in US hospitals and clinics than I, I think I most people would ever that. imagine. Yes. You know, uh, uh, the number one loss of life on the battlefield was bleeding out from extremities. And so we gave everybody in the battlefield a tourniquet, taught them how to use it, and we totally prevented the number one loss of life on the battlefield. We cut the loss of life in half, uh, more than that. 
with just one thing, tourniquets. Funny, everything we thought we knew about tourniquets was wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, lose it, use a tourniquet, lose the limb, you know, loosen it every so often. All, all baloney. The new tourniquets are much wider. Uh, I, I like, by the way, I like the SWAT T. Go to Amazon, look up the SWAT T. It's very intuitive. It's very cheap. It's a reusable. You can practice with it. It's just a big rubber elastic piece. And by the way, around the world, they're making them out of a bicycle inner tubes and doing the same thing worldwide. I've been, so uh, real quick, if I can interject while we're on this, because yeah. um, I've been recommending here on the podcast now, I want to say it's uh, Snake River Systems. If I'm wrong on the name, it's not by much. I don't know if you've heard of them. I think they're relatively new. I found them through Jack Carr's latest book, his latest James Reese novel. He mentioned them, and it's it's the tourniquet shrunk down to its just its absolute bare necessities. And so it's ultimately pocketable, carryable. It's so easy to throw in a pack, in a pocket, even more so because they they have advanced so much. They're so it's so much easier to have one. In a glove box, yeah. I keep them in our vehicle med kits now, but I, I normally have one in a fanny pack, in my rucksack. They're in all of our vehicles because Snake River Systems, I bought a whole handful of them once I found them because the, just well, the barrier to entry is so small. Yes, and, and again, uh, the SWAT T is another one to look mm -hmm. at. Uh, it's really intuitive in its use and everything, but, uh, but tourniquets alone have easily cut the murder rate in half over the last decade. Every responder, every cop, and many, many citizens like you and I, we carry tourniquets everywhere. I've got a SWAT T in every jacket pocket, every glove compartment, every, you know, I carry two on the road with me. Uh, but, but, you know, if cop slaps on a tourniquet, saves a crime victim's life, you're prevented a murder. So to understand the numbers, if just 20 or 30 people a day slap on a tourniquet, save a crime victim's life, we cut the murder rate in half. Now, I train our nation's largest fire EMS service. And, and, and I, I, several times a year for over a decade now, wonderful people, they say, Dave, we guarantee you in our city alone, 20 to 30 times a year, 20 to 30 times a day, we slap on a tourniquet and save a crime victim's life. In our city alone, uh, it, 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 it's much worse than it looks. Now, I train every federal agency. I just trained a bunch of awesome FBI folks in Illinois. They're, they're doing great work for us every day. But I beat them up a little bit every time. I tell them we're lying when we give the murder rate without allowing for medical technology. I told the vice president, you know, just like we have inflation adjusted dollars, we need medically adjusted murders. Yeah. And when we do that, it will absolutely transform the way we see the problem. It, it's much worse than it looks. We need our sheepdogs. We need to be yeah. prepared. That portions of our city out of control. Law enforcement recruiting is down. Retention is down. Numbers are down. Don't count on the cops to be there for you. They're, they're doing their best in a tragic situation, but it's on you. And, and thank God we live in a nation where we can make those kind of decisions. Yeah. Uh, pepper spray, you know, take a few steps up the path. Uh, you know, carrying a guitar does not make you a musician. <laughs> uh, you know, it, and, 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 and it's good to carry a gun, but you got to get the, you know, the concealed carry training that you will get and the qualification is the bare minimum. Uh, go beyond that. And, and one of the things I love, I tell everybody about, is hojutsu, the martial art of the firearm. Uh, in Japan, everything was an art. 
and and gunpowder was an art called hojutsu, H-O-J-U-T-S-U. And then in the early, um, in the in the mid-1800s, they said, well, wait a minute, repeating firearms, we can compete with muzzle loaders. Samurai with a sword can compete with that, but we can't compete with the repeating firearms. And they banned gunpowder. So an amazing guy, Jeff, uh, 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 sensei, uh, 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 re- re- resurrected the art of the firearm. Uh, Jeff Hall, uh, 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 Alaska state trooper, the most decorated Alaska state trooper, a Vietnam era ranger. Uh, uh, he was a high-level martial artist in multiple fields, ahead of their, their, their training academy for years. He is uh, one of 30-odd grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. And he's resurrected the idea of, of shooting as a martial art. You know, we don't have pistol teams anymore. We don't have bowling leagues anymore. But 20 million Americans in the martial arts. I grew up in the martial arts. I love the martial arts. The structure and the dojo and striving for your next belt. I showed up for the first three-day hojutsu weekend. And by the skin of my teeth, I shot brown belt. You know, I thought I was good. IPSC, IDPA, military trained. And, uh, and I, I trained for two years to get my black belt. You know, you're striving. It's, I knew the shots I was missing. I knew the time hacks I was missing. But it, we take people with no experience and walk out on the hujitsu range of the three-day weekend. It's the best weekend you'll ever have. We coach them. I mean, imagine a martial arts dojo. And imagine the white belt walking in the door. And we, we honor them and we greet them and we give them the basics while at the same time, the black belts are practicing over here in the corner. And that's our range, you know, in hojutsu.com, uh, H-O-J-U-T-S-U.com. Uh, uh, it's exploding. It's our future. You know, if you want to learn about the sword, go to Europe, go to Japan, unarmed combat, go to China, go to Korea, Japan. But we are the people of the gun. Yeah. You want to learn pistol fighting? Come to America and hujitsu.com. You know, yeah. and, and again, don't be satisfied with just carrying that weapon. Push that envelope and, and be a little bit better with it and, uh, and seek that training. Uh, but, but praise God, whether you choose that right or not, whether you choose to do that, praise God, we live in a nation where you have that option. Yeah. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me, let me back you up some because we covered, uh, by my count, five or five and a half decades in, in about 15 minutes and right up, right up front here. Whoa. So let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to back you up and, and fill in some of the gaps. Cause I, I think it's always interesting, uh, particularly with a guest like yourself kind of to inform, uh, you know, how, how does Dave become the Lieutenant Colonel, you know? And I think that helps us kind of understand uh, what informs your work and, and then get into some of the details uh, of your body of work. So, you know, um, you mentioned coming back stateside after being born in Germany. Uh, did you enjoy growing up uh, a military brat, if I can name it colloquially? I, I, it seems very polarizing. No, no, he it, it, it wasn't really a military brat. My dad was a cop in Cheyenne, Wyoming. 1962, no academy. Wyatt Earp didn't have no stinking academy. <laughs> you know, it's funny to think about. It wasn't until the 1970s that we began to send most American cops to an academy. For 200 years, from 1770s to the 1970s, for 200 years, like Wyatt Earp, we kind of gave him a gun and badge and cut him loose. Imagine if we still did that. You know, it's a theme you wrap your mind around ever better training, ever better technology, ever better tools just to stay where we are, just barely hanging on. Medical technology saving. We had last year was the all time record number of cops shot in the line of duty. 
all-time record number of cops shot in the line of duty since we've been keeping track. But the number of dead obviously was not nearly so bad because we got tourniquets and we got state-of-the-art medical. But uh, so anyway, that, that was a cop, but he was raising five kids on a cop's pay. And, and, uh, and he always thought of himself as just an old cop. But uh, the Minuteman missile program was coming in. And they were actually nuke security guards for Boeing Corporation. And they were paying some pretty good money for the time. And so my dad, uh, much as he loved being a cop, he became, you know, a security guard for nukes going in, Minuteman 1, Minuteman 2. And we moved around uh, around the nation every 18 months, all the places where the Russians blew it up when they blew up the missiles. We wouldn't really care. I mean, North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, <laughs> they're gone tomorrow. They care. And, and I grew up in these wonderful places. And, uh, and we grew up in the bitter cold of North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Panhandle. And, uh, uh, and, and we grew up having to move every 18 months. And a little bit of a community kind of moved with us. Okay. Dad ultimately became chief of security, worked his way up to chief. But uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was an amazing childhood. Uh, you were the new guy on a steady basis, and you had to fight or or get bullied, and, and I chose to fight. Uh, I was this scrawny, skinny little guy with Coke bottle glasses, and uh, and uh, and and I I just had to learn. And, yeah. my, and my dad, you know, supported me. He said, you know, he said, if you're in fear for your life or fear for your safety, you have the right to use whatever level of violence you need to to protect yourself. Uh, uh, martial arts, uh, as soon as it was available, in in uh, it was in middle school in in Pine Bluffs, Wyoming. I began to, as soon as martial arts was available, I was there. And and they're so good at saying, look, the skills we're giving you will only ever be used when no other option is available. Uh, and, 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 and that's such a, a vital thing for people to learn at a young age. And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, uh, about understanding when and where it's appropriate to use these skills uh, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give to any child is putting them in the martial arts. I think it's yeah. terribly, terribly valuable. Uh, so many sports have got concussions, uh, uh, boxing or, 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 or football, uh, you know, even hitting the soccer ball. I think we're finding out so much about concussions, yeah. but the martial arts is such an amazing gift to give to a child. Uh, I grew up in the martial arts who grew up moving every 18 months. And, and, and frankly, I, I loved it. I, I was, I had great parents. I, uh, I had great support structure. I love what I did. Uh, we were on military bases a lot. Uh, the housing was made available on military bases for us and usually trailer homes. We called them tin ghettos. You know, we'd move <laughs> into the tin ghetto and imagine my mom, you know, in a, in a, in a, well, one of the old style trailer homes uh, with five kids in the winter in North Dakota and why not North Dakota? Imagine raising five kids in a trailer home, you know, in uh, uh, but it, it was a good life and it was a good ride and they were good people. Yeah. I miss that generation. You know, they could tell a joke and they could take a joke yes. and they, they enjoyed each other's company. I, I think that's what makes these podcasts so much fun. Yeah. It's just having that chance to 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 touch base with, with a fun conversation, yeah. with fun people. Uh you know, telling jokes and sharing stories and and talking about uh, talking about things. I, I miss that generation. Oh, absolutely. It was I, a good I, I used to run. love uh you know visiting Illinois in the summers. I'd go stay with my uh my mom's parents for a little bit and they started every morning up before the sun. They'd make coffee at the house, which was always funny to me. I was always asleep for that part. But they'd go into town in this itty bitty little town in Illinois 
Cuba, Illinois, if you can believe it. They'd go to the actual town square to the pharmacy. They called it the drugstore. And at the pharmacy, there was coffee. There was an actual soda jerk. And they served donuts. And they'd go down there and they'd meet up with all the other old folks from the town. And they'd drink coffee there and eat donuts and catch up on all the news. They didn't need to turn on the TV. They didn't grab the newspaper. They knew everything that was going on in town by the time they got back to the house. And it was always a blast going going with them for that. I loved it. Yeah, we, we live in a society today where people are always, you know, looking at their phone or looking at the TV screen. I, I you know, I, I just like going to a restaurant that has a TV screen up because, you, you know, you, you got to understand that billions amount of research have gone into making that TV almost impossible to ignore. Yeah. But that kind of brings us around to another aspect of our civilization, which is this global epidemic of sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the video games are designed to put you into flow state. You know, we've all been there. You know, we're playing a game and suddenly it's four, five, six o'clock in the morning. Got no idea where the last eight hours went. And it's time to get up and get dressed and go to work. And, and they do that on purpose. Yeah. Uh, and, and they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any kid at any age. And, uh, and, and, and this sleep deprivation that's just, you know, it's one thing to, to sell these products to adults, but to children. So, so this epidemic of sleep deprivation, I think, is the major challenge to our civilization today. And we're blindsided yeah. by it. Sleep, sleep is a biological blind spot. You know, your body doesn't know how to make you get enough sleep because it always happened naturally. It got dark. There's nothing else to do. A little talking, a little sex, you rolled over, you went to sleep. There's nothing to do. It was dark. They were invited to electric lights and televisions and video games and binge watching TV shows and social media. And, and all those things are designed to steal your time. Yeah. And, and, and Facebook will never say you've been online for 36 hours to get some sleep now. The video game will never say you've been playing this game for 24 hours, got to get some sleep now. Uh, you know, the uh, Netflix, the head of Netflix said their competitor is sleep. They will never tell you. You've been binge-watching shows for 48 hours. You've got to get some sleep now. So after 24 hours without sleep, you're impaired judgment. This is, this is the, the foundation to understand. You're stupid. You do stupid things. You say stupid things after 24 hours without sleep. It's equivalent to being 0.10 above legally drunk after 24 hours without sleep. And they're all around us. And, and it's a key factor in suicides. I lost a brother and two nephews to suicide as West Point psych professor. I studied suicide intensely. And it wasn't until the last decade that I became aware of the powerful, powerful research showing the link between sleep deprivation and suicide. Not only is sleep deprivation a key factor in suicide, it's the most remediable factor. Yeah. Look, we, we can't help your finances right now. We can't do much about your relationship right now, but we can, by golly, get you a good night's sleep right now, and the world will look different after a good night's sleep. Alcohol and suicide have always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision. Look, every living organism has a drive for self-preservation. To intentionally take your own life, you have to have this profoundly impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide-related, uh, impaired judgment, bad decision, never had a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is this epidemic of sleep deprivation, and children are dying. 
at a suicide level never seen before around the planet. Yeah. Every nation, every I just talked to a, a prime a, a guy whose parents were prime minister in India. He's he's a member of parliament in India, and they're facing this epidemic of sleep deprivation and the suicides and the traffic deaths come with it. So here's parenting one-on-one for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. No laptop in the room, no cell phone in the room, no TV in the room. They have got to go to the room and sleep. A cop came up to me during one of my classes. I, I, I was saying that, I told him, you know, teenage girls, 10, 11, 12-year-old teenage girls, suicide rate has tripled per capita in just the last decade. And a cop came up in one of my classes. He said, I had one of those teenagers. He said she was a good girl. She was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone overnight. You can trust me. Family policy is cell phone. I charge you, go to bed. He said, okay, I trust you. Keep your cell phone. He said, a little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. He said, we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And that's one thing the video games teach is bullying. They, take you, they teach you to take pleasure in inflicting suffering. And he, he, he said, I knew immediately. And it was heartrending to see her up all night long. He said, trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand up for her. He said, I understood immediately. My little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented, and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen. Yeah. He said, I can't, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? That one thing on earth I'm going to for my little girl was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff. In the world. But who's going to be your mommy? Who's going to make you turn it all off? So another form of death that has exploded worldwide is traffic deaths. And of course, there's a link between sleep deprivation and traffic deaths. Alcohol and traffic deaths are the two, alcohol and sleep deprivation are the two major factors in traffic deaths, and they've exploded. There's a reason why truck drivers and airline pilots require Bilal to get enough sleep. Yeah. So the two major killers of our cops, the two major killers of your kids, suicide and traffic death. The third killer has come out of nowhere is this, this, this explosion of opiate deaths. Fentanyl's an opiate. You know, why opiates, prescription opiates, they've always been there. Why are they suddenly the drug of choice? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. Do an online search. Sleep deprivation, suicide, boom, come right up. Sleep deprivation, traffic deaths, boom, come right up. Yeah. Sleep deprivation, chronic pain, boom, come right up. And, and, and people say, I heard all the time, give me a pill of victory, you need a pill, you need more sleep. And you got to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch. Caffeine's fine. But shortly after lunch, knock it off because it's stopping you from getting deep cycle sleep. And that creates chronic pain. And that is a key factor in Alzheimer's and dementia. So this, 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 this opiate epidemic, this, uh, this explosion of suicides and traffic deaths worldwide, it's also, as I said, a key factor in, in, uh, in Alzheimer's and heart disease. I, I really recommend a book. I got a book coming out about two years called On Sleep. The tragic impact of a global epidemic of sleep deprivation. And it's so important to learn sleep hygiene, at least sleep well and have proper hygiene. But the, uh, the best book out there right now is Why We Sleep yeah. 
by Dr. Matthew Walker, required reading for everybody. He has caught hell from the video game industry, from the, the binge watching, the, from the, you know, the, the live streaming industry, from every tame stooge scientist in the television industry about how sleep deprivation's killing our kids and causing suicide and causing traffic deaths. And, and, and he's got hell and he's got a great online site where he just puts out the newest data that even reinforces what he says. Yeah. But my, my dad began smoking in 1941 when he was five years old. He said he couldn't even look over the counter at the general store. He plunked a nickel on top of the counter, bought a pack of Bull Durham tobacco and rolling paper, started smoking at five. Hey, cigarette, <laughs> candy rots your teeth, right? We all know that. Candy rots your teeth. It's his money. Cigarettes are good for you. And they had ads, like, you know, they had ads that says that more doctors smoke camels than the other cigarette. Oh, doctors smoke camels, huh? And then they had ads, like, you know, they, they had ads that, yeah, as your dentist, I would recommend Viceroy's cigarettes. Well, dentists say Viceroy's, doctors say camels, which is best. They're poison. They're all poison. Don't do it. Yeah. 55 years later, those cigarettes finally killed my dad. But that industry fought to the whole battle with tobacco industry over one thing. Stop selling this stuff to children. And so in 2005, the video, the, in 2005, California legislature overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. California, Hollywood said, yeah, we're good at this. Silicon Valley said, yeah, we're good at this. Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. Arnold signed the law. And the video game fought all the way to the Supreme Court. They said, we have a constitutional First Amendment right to sell any game to any child at any age. You cannot stop us, you cannot regulate us. And they conned seven old men, never played Pong in their life, that, you know, and into overturning the law. And it's all in my book, Assassination Generation. That's one of the reasons they want to shut me down. Yeah. I'm video game industry number one, number one enemy. And, uh, and, 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 and the dissenting opinions are very valuable. But the fact that they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any kid, this is this is evil. Yeah, that's where you cross the line. It's one thing to sell tobacco to adults, alcohol, sex, and pornography, uh, 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 marijuana, uh, automobiles. Those are all things adults can do, but can't. But kids can't. Firearms. But we cross the line into evil. This whole industry stealing our sleep and fighting tooth and nail to sell it to children and not letting you know the danger yeah. of this epidemic of sleep deprivation. It is, it is the defining challenge of our age uh, to, to reach out there. So just one nugget of advice. Uh, if you just walk out the door and do one thing, our bodies are designed to sleep in complete total darkness. And you got to completely black out the room. But even better than that, make the room as dark as you can and combine it with the sleep mask and it'll rock your world. Yeah. There's a sleep mask on Amazon, my personal favorite, that last I checked had over 85,000 reviews for a sleep mask. The one right behind it, the one my grandson likes, was, 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 uh, uh, it's got 65,000 reviews. And my wife likes another one. You know, my, my grandson went off to college. Now, what's most likely to kill my grandson? Suicide, traffic deaths, opiate overdoses. What's the greatest gift I give my grandson? A good night's sleep. He's heard my classes. He helped me in my class, sent him off to college, gave him several different kinds of sleep masks. I said, find one you like and be sure you use it. I talked to him. He says, hi, Grandpa. I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm doing great. You get enough sleep? Yes, sir. 
Are you in your sleep mask? Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, it got a little grody. I went online and ordered another one. So the, just the number one life hack right now, go online, get a mask and start sleeping on that thing. You may not have one more minute of sleep, but you get quality sleep in a totally dark room. Yeah. There's so many other things. A major thing is cut off caffeine shortly after lunch. Well, uh, nothing wrong with caffeine, nothing wrong with caffeinated drinks, but shortly after lunch, you got to cut it off because it gets in the way of, of, of quality sleep. Let's let's hit on that one a little bit here because, and I still want to still want to drag you back in history some a little bit, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm I'm still sitting here with my uh, my Jocko Go actually coming up to uh, yeah. room temperature here. Now we've got oh, we've got a tradition here on the podcast of cracking open a Jocko Go every single episode. I think this is episode 146 when it drops. We've had a Jocko Go open for every single one. Now, in deference to your expertise, I will nurse this one. I'm not going to chug this. <laughs> <laughs> right in front of you, but I, I am going to crack it open and cheers to you. Um, but I, I do like, you know, what what brought this about, and listeners know I'm pretty easy to suck into a Jocko Fuel and a Jocko Fuel commercial, and I'll try and fight that urge right now. But part of the, part of the impetus for Jocko was, you know, spending this time as a battlefield commander in the SEAL teams in, in Ramadi and watching these soldiers. Of course, you know, they're doing overwatch for these Marines in Ramadi. And these guys on the ground are just sucking down the worst possible sludge. Forget, forget coffee. It's the monsters. It's the bangs. It's the stuff you can't even name. And it's 200, 300, 400 milligrams of caffeine. And, uh, you know, here Jocko pairs up with the guys over at Origin, Maine, and they come out with Jocko Go, and it's 95 milligrams of caffeine. And there's, it's adaptogens, and it's, uh, you know, it's amino acids, and it's electrolytes. And it's so is it that little boost? Yes. But is there the sugar in there or anything else that's going to poison you rather than fuel you? No. Now, should you be drinking it at four o'clock in the afternoon like I am now? It's about the cut off. Rare occasion, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, here's the deal. Now, now first off, um, we've been at war for 22 years. We're still in Iraq, many other places. For the first 15 years, the U.S. Armed Forces passed out injury drinks, monster drinks, and what have you, like, 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 like candy. They gave them to us by the pallets, we gave them the troops. But about seven years ago, two major Department of Defense-wide DOD studies came out on the energy drinks with the identical conclusions. And right now, for all practical purposes, there is a complete ban on issuing energy drinks, U.S. Armed Forces. They're like cigarettes. Yeah. You want to buy your own, you're an adult, we're not going to stop you. But in a tactical environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones most likely to not off on the job. In an academic environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones most likely to flunk out of the class. Energy drinks were the best predictor of academic failure. So, so I, I'm a big fan of Jocko's and I'm a big fan of, of, of him putting that thing together and finding a better measure. Yeah. Uh, the, the mega doses of caffeine and sugar. Now, they will give you a one-hour burst of physical ability before a PT test, before an athletic event. Not, not, a, not a bad idea, but then you will crash. And the second one feels good for 10 minutes. You crash. All you're doing at the first one is building up your tolerance and your addiction to caffeine. So the half-life of caffeine in our body is about five hours. That means the caffeine you took at 5 p.m. is still at half strength when you go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's making you have bad quality sleep. So here you are at four, you know, you pound one down. That's not too bad. That's about where you should cut a hard line, somewhere around three or four, 
really cut a hard line on caffeine, and you're pretty much good to go. But the link between this caffeine and Alzheimer's is terrifying, yeah. without a doubt. Uh, the caffeine prevents us from getting deep cycle sleep. That causes chronic pain. And it's also one of the greatest predictors of Alzheimer's. Yeah. People say, well, I'll, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, you <laughs> have a decade of Alzheimer's first, you idiot. Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, you know so, so, so just, just, just pace yourself for the long game. Uh, as adults, we need a minimum of seven hours sleep a night. And we should be shooting for that. And so much depends on that. Pace yourself for the long game. Caffeine in the morning, man, you know, and, uh, that hit at lunch, maybe that hit right after lunch, ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But but after that, we, we got to shut it down and we got to protect your sleep. Sleep is that little vacation that waits at the end of every day. Guard your sleep, protect your sleep. And, and caffeine's the enemy of good sleep. So I'm cutting it off, you know, shortly after three or four is a hard line. And, and most days, maybe a little earlier than that, there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Uh, and again, I'm a big fan of Jocko's products and what Jocko's doing out there. Uh, I think he's created the best energy drink. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, like you said, it's not putting all that garbage in your body. It's scientifically wired. Uh, he's a brilliant man and a great contributor to our civilization. And, and, and his energy drink is just one other example of the brilliant things this guy's yeah, doing. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, a few before I pull you back in the timeline here, a few tools that, that we've come across. Uh, and it's nice because I feel like some of this stuff has become a little more mainstream, especially um, Andrew Huberman has been so big in the podcast space out of nowhere. And what an incredible mind and is doing such a great job of disseminating just incredible um, amounts of, of knowledge and backing it up with the studies around our physiology, around how to best improve sleep, study, you know, strength. And uh, so he's done uh, some great content on supplements and getting away from the things like, uh, you know, most of the over-the-counter sleep aids, they're not going to give you the deep sleep that you need. You're asleep, but it's not restful. It's not restorative. Uh, melatonin, we know now, is very problematic, but we see things uh, around, uh, and I'm going to blank on some of them now. Um, oh, gosh. Go to Huberman. He's smart. But some of the things I like that are just physical tools, just getting the room cold. It is so again, it's another, it's a simple one. You don't need to buy anything else to do it. You turn the air down a little bit. It's fine to be under the covers. It's fine to be warm. You know, I, I tell people, you know, we wear that sleep mask and say, well, it makes me sweaty. Well, that's good because yeah. turn the temperature down. You're supposed to be dark and cold. Yeah. So the data's there. You know, turn that temperature, turn the ceiling fan on. Yeah. When that face mask starts feeling comfortable, then you're really kind yeah. of hitting the sweet spot for bringing that temperature down. And the, yeah. the one I've really appreciated, and I, I started this in our household when we had uh, our first child. Now, and again, there's a little bit of a barrier to entry money-wise here, but putting smart lights in your home, I have almost every light in my home programmed to change the color temperature of the lights along with the sun at the end of the day. So by time the sun is down, there's almost no blue light left in our home except for what's coming out of the screens. But the electrical lights around us have all dimmed and changed their color temperature. And I can see the difference when we put our kids down for bed. You can see yeah. the difference between the lights being full yeah. tilt, boogie, bright and white all the way up until they go to bed versus it gets darker with the sun. Like our biology is programmed to, like our yeah. circadian rhythms are looking for. Yeah. And it makes a world of difference at bedtime. And, and, you know, um, um, I was going through a bunch of old Christmas pictures, 
And our big living room has got real golden light, real yellow golden light. And outside there's snow. And it's just so magical to be in this warm golden light. Uh, and in the evening, your, your, your body craves that. Mm-hmm. And you're creating this positive environment. One thing everybody can do, you know, there's a lot of bad in our technology, but there's a lot of good out there too. And, and this ability to adjust the light on your screen, but must adjust the light on your computer and your cell phone. Uh, and then, like you said, for the whole household, to be able to make that switch to those lights is one of the best applications of technology yeah. and wellness for you and your family that we could possibly give. You know, these are, these are good things. Yeah. Well, the, the best nights of sleep we'll get around here, and we don't get to do this as often down here in Florida, but I think you'll appreciate the reference, is nothing helps sleep like a little bit of Ranger TV. And for the listeners that aren't familiar with the reference, Ranger TV is a fire. And if you can sit around in darkness with nothing going but the fire, there's no blue light on, you're in the environment. By the time you go to bed, man, your body is primed and ready to go to sleep. And it is the best. It is one of the, again, we've got in our house, we have two gas fireplaces that have been adjusted to be able to, you know, to make sure that it's in a way that puts heat into the house. Mm -hmm. Because there are fireplaces that could work against you. Yeah. But we got that that gas fireplace bringing heat in the house. Of course, we have a generator. It's also a gas generator. If the electricity goes out, the gas is still good, or we can plug in some propane tanks. But that that fireplace is magic. And spending that time around the Ranger TV uh, is is something so deep inside of us. It's been like that for for untold millennia of our species to gather around the fire and the comfort and the warmth together is one of the greatest gifts you give your family is that time around the fire. And, you know, I I went to grad school en route to teaching at West Point. And and maybe the single best nugget of information I got, uh, I I live in a a world where I'd stagger in home after, you know, 16-hour days, you know, or full days, you know. uh, But I I always tried to be home by bedtime. And I'd read to my kids. And and here's the the deal. Uh, All other things being equal, what you do before you go to bed is what you're gonna dream about. And we've all done that. And what you dream about is what you process into long-term memory. So your kid could have a terrible day, but if you own that last half hour, own that last half hour, snuggle them in close and read to them for that last half hour, you are literally programming what they're gonna get out of the day. And, And you know, it's amazing. We got little kids that are, you know, one, two, three years old, they're going to have what we call infantile amnesia. They're not going to remember anything when they were two and almost nothing from three and very little from four, but it's impacting them. Yeah. And, and, and your best investment in those first three or four years of their life and on up, I, I read to my kids, we, we read the whole Narnia series, a chapter at a time, the whole series. We read a lot of other things, chapter books, a chapter, and right up until they were they were young teenagers. I was still reading to them every night. And, uh, and, and in spite of all the stupid stuff and bad things that happened, I was able to, uh, you know, they turned out okay. <laughs> Mostly their mom gets the credit. I yeah. was never there. But the one thing I tried to do was own that last half hour. It's the greatest gift you can possibly give to your children. Nestle them in close, read to them, creating them this love for the written word, your voice, the stories, the narratives, uh, uh, you know, and 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 it's so powerful. Yeah. Don't watch a show and read to them. 
and uh, and own those last half hour and, and invested in their children. No, that, that that's good, and I think that's a good place. You know, let's pivot back in your timeline some here. So you mentioned yeah. being one of five coming up. Where did you fall in the lineup there? Those five. I was I was the oldest. All right, and uh, yeah. So and, you did uh, everything you know, wrong. Was, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you know it's not really true. My I was I was too much, you know, in, in a way my dad's favorite because I was the one that could do the things he wanted to do first. The others got left behind a little bit. You know, I, I it was a good youth, yeah. and we all turned out okay. But I wish I could have been a little bit better, big brother. You know, I was always focused on what I wanted to do and how the little guys got in the way. Uh, my my sister was right below me, and we were best buddies, and we still are. But you know, as you get into the ones younger than that, uh, they weren't as good as buddy, and 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 uh, and just uh, you know, it's it's part of yeah. big families, you know, and. I wasn't the one that got everything wrong. I was the one that was old enough to start doing the things my dad wanted to do with me. And uh, it was a good yeah. ride. Uh, how about you? Where'd you fit into the equation? Uh, I, I'm one of two and I'm the baby. I am, uh, I was uh, a surprise, not an accident. I was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> this story, my sister loves this story. She's six and a half years older than me and I never let her forget it. Uh, but uh, my mom was at an appointment to get her tubes tied. When she found out she when she found out she was pregnant with me, I snuck right in there. So and here I sit now, and uh, absolutely the the quintessential uh, baby, and am still, and I yeah I'm okay with that. So and it's fun. We we've got two now, one six and one four, and it's it's kind of fun. They're closer than my sister and I were, and uh, it's fun watching that play out with them. We we got a couple of good kids books that I think you'd really enjoy. We got one is a sheepdog kids book, and it's really deep. You know, the sheep will die to protect the ones they love. Only the sheepdog will die for other people's loved ones, you know, and, and yeah. the kids in there deep and kids get it. Then we got another book, uh, really great artwork with it, really a lot of fun, called Why Mommy Carries a Gun. And if anybody in the family is going to carry a gun, mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, and if anybody's going to carry a gun, here's what we want the kids to know. Yeah. Find a gun, stop, don't touch. Four universal gun safety laws, being the sheepdog. That's why mommy carries a gun. That's why daddy carries or whoever, because they're the sheepdog. Yeah. They want to protect people and they want to protect you. Uh, we've got, you know, the Second Amendment, famous sheepdogs throughout history. I'll send you a copy of it. Uh, and read to those little ones, yeah. uh, even when they don't get it. Uh, and 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 keep keep spending that time with yeah. them. They're, they'll, you know, they'll get big and ugly and leave the house before you know it. And then they bring grandkids. And then the grandkids get big and ugly and leave the house. So I got a grandson <laughs> of the army now. Oh, wow. But, you know, he, and, and, and we got great grandchildren coming down the pike fairly, you know, soon. So we're eager for that next generation. And, and it's really worthy to talk about that, that dynamic in, in what I think is the most important lesson in what I teach and what I do. Um, about resiliency and about being the sheepdog and being a good parent. Uh, you know, we, we study people who do not get PTSD. This resiliency revolves around not getting PTSD. And uh, one of the most famous examples is a man who walked out of Nazi death camp by the name of Viktor Frankl. And he wrote some pretty important books. And he said, I realized the only thing in the universe those Nazi bastards couldn't control is how I choose to respond. And the only thing universe you can control 
is how you choose to respond. When you fully grasp that, when you fully understand that, then you are truly the master of your life. Yeah. And, and what that means is, if you lose your temper, you didn't lose your temper, you gave it away. It's the only thing you can control. Now that's easy to say, yeah. it ain't so easy to do. But the first thing in understanding that, and I call it this, uh, the, today we talk about the quiet professional. You know, the laconic Spartan, the stoic Roman, the inscrutable samurai, the stiff upper lip Brit. And today we talk about the quiet professional. They're all different ways of saying the same thing, self-control, self-control. And, and I tell everybody, nobody respects your temper tantrum. It is never, ever appropriate to lose your temper. Yeah. I am ashamed of some of the things they did with my kids. But we did a better job with the grandkids. And have you ever looked at your parents? You ever looked at your parents with your kids and said, "Are you the same ones that raised me?" Uh, no, they're not. Colonel, it's so they're- it's so funny. Uh, we're blessed to have uh, my mom with us. She's she's in the house with us right now. We're actually at the tail end of building a tiny house for her right outside our back door. And oh, uh, when my son was born, she'd come and stay through the week until he went to preschool. She, she watched him uh, during oh. the day and then stayed on when my daughter was born. Uh, oh. And it, it's just been hilarious watching this woman who one of my <laughs> one of my core memories is this woman breaking, physically snapping a wooden spoon on my rear end. And let me tell you, I had it coming. And the yeah. thought, yeah. the thought never, uh, you don't ever see the glint in her eye to reach for a wooden spoon with these kids. And I'm like, yeah. when, when they're all upset because Grammy says, clean up the last thing before you get out the next thing. And they act like it's the end of your world. I'm like, listen, guys, she's on like a level two out of 10. You have no idea what this woman <laughs> is capable of. But that's called maturity. <laughs> yeah. We want to get it as fast as we can. You know, the first step is to understand it is never, ever appropriate to lose your temper. There's not a right time. Nobody respects your temper tantrum. They respect your calm. Now, again, that's easy to say. It ain't so easy to do. Uh, but we, we want to strive for that. And, and, uh, and the first step is understanding it's not right. It's not good uh, to lose your temper. Uh, if we punish, we punish in sorrow. We punish solemnly and calmly. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so much of this, you know, to paraphrase Viktor Frankl, that life is a game. If you lose your temper, you lose the game. Because that's the only thing in the game you can control is yourself and how you choose to respond. And if we give way to bitterness or denial or complacency or anger, that's the one thing you can control. And, and, and so the world respects that quiet professional, that self-control. Yeah. And, and we want to strive for that. And I'll give you one example on this, and I, I tell this to my cops, and it works for everybody. I, my major area of study is what happens to people in combat. And you can break your body down into two parts, the autonomic nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Now, autonomic nervous system are automatic. They're the things we can't control. That breaks into two parts, sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system. And those are fight or flight, and feed and breed. And, and, and your dog is fight or flight and feed and breed. We got this puppy inside, and the puppy does four things, fight or flight, feed and breed. And it's sometimes called the four F, fight, flight, feed, and the fourth F is breed. So, <laughs> so, so 
you know, we all know about fight or flight. And, 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 and these things are, but, but after a life and death event, there's a backlash to feed and breed. And a lot of people, victims of crime, people in traumatic events, will, will have very, very intense sex. And they're seeking closeness and reassurance. And, and uh, uh, Frank Herbert called it the universal drive for immortality through progeny in the face of death. Whatever it is, it's a biological response and it frightens people. But I tell my first responders, you know, if this ever happens to you, you're, you're going to see a lot of traumatic events, a lot of, and, and, and you'll come home and you have this response. And it's one of the perks that come with the job, you know, relax and enjoy it. Off duty. Wait. <laughs> Off well, and, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, there were a few things that I, I wanted to hit on while we spoke, if we get the opportunity, and this is one of them, where this yeah. is something that you've taken some criticism on, mostly yeah. by having this well, being taken out of context. And I, the, the way this yeah. is, at least I saw it presented by your detractors, was almost like a, you you should seek out the confrontational experience because of the benefit, which isn't the case that you're making yeah. at all. And uh, and and people are in this job because they want to protect and they want to they want to help people, all of them. But you know, again, they took that so grossly out of context. And uh, and what's really evil about that is not that they're trying to hurt me. Uh, it, it's that people will have this fundamental biological response and, and be deeply troubled by it. Yeah. So you know, there's an appropriate outlet. But again, I, I tell them off duty. And of course, they cut it just before that. It gets a great laugh because so many first responders get in trouble for having sex on duty every year. And they're blindsided by this biological response. So the Army had me train all of their uh, sexual harassment assault investigators and counselors. And uh, I talk to them about this biological dynamics and uh, and and this biological response. And it's, you know, what looks like a pattern of promiscuity might actually be a normal biological response. You need to understand this. Now, and the critical thing is this is never an excuse for inappropriate behavior. Uh, now, we all know about fight or flight. Oh, the fight or flight hormones kicked in. I punched them out. I couldn't control. Oh, okay, we understand. You're fine. No, no. It, 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 about five years old, you learn you've got to control the fight or flight response. Yeah. And that, that's what defines us is controlling that fight or flight response. And that's that 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 pro quiet professional and that's that self-control but you also need to understand that the, the the feed and breed response and if you think i'm making that up do an online search for feed and breed it's a number one descriptor for the parasympathetic nervous system response but but you know oh the feeder you know the feed and breed hormones kicked in we couldn't control ourselves no no this is never an excuse yeah. but what we got to do is 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 Everything I do is about about taking these things that are not under conscious control, the fight or flight, and bringing them under conscious control. And one of the tools we have to do that, you know, we're up here in fight or flight. Something has us troubled, is eating, and and that's that's rest and digest, or, or feed and breed. And uh, and so you know, one of the best tools we have, and when you're up here and you're you're, you're losing it, you know, is a big swig of water. A cop sent me an email. It's uh, one of the things I teach, and it kind of personifies it, this case study. He said, Dave, he said, I'm a high-speed pursuit. My heart's pounding. I key the mic. 
and I heard Mickey Mouse come out of my mouth. And and I teach, if he can't control your voice, he can't control your hands, you're probably going to die. Yeah. How's a pilot's voice always sound, come over the radio, calm. The worse it gets, the calmer they get. You know, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. Uh, we're going in the Hudson. You know, how do they do that? Well, they learned in 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 ten thousand dogfights and fifty thousand aviation emergencies coming over the radio. If you can't control your voice, you can't control your hands. So here's a cop in high speed pursuit. He realized he's up here in this unsustainable, you know, fight or flight response. He said, "I remember what you said. I had a big bottle of water. I had a bottle of water. Took a big swig of water. Key the mic." <laughs> Fighter pilot comes over radio from that point on. So the, the swig of water uh, around the world, when somebody tears up the emergency room, one of the things they do is they grab a bag of M&Ms, they shove it in the guy's face, would you like some M&Ms, and a large portion of the time completely defuse the situation. And uh, and this whole thing about, you know, just take that big swig of water, regain control, you know, uh, 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 talking over a beer is really healthy. Wine's made for sipping. Uh, uh, you know, whiskey's made for sipping, beer's made for gulping. You know, you talk over beer and you begin to lose it. Uh, you, you take a big swig of beer, you gain control. That's the path of healing, to separate the memory from the emotions. Re-experiencing the event is not PTSD. It's normal. But what you've got to do is you've got to separate that memory from the emotions. You've got to be able to talk about it calmly. And that big swig of beer, or big swig of water, regain control and keep talking about it. A friend of mine is one of our nation's leading therapists for federal agents. Uh, several agencies I trained, they, they have an, an agent in a deadly force incident. They call her in and, and she's evolved to this bottle of water. Put the bottle of water in front of them. And every time they start to become emotional, take a big swig of water. And from the very beginning, the first time they talk about it, they go through the process of separating the memory from the emotions. And she told me, she said, six years of college, 14 years of practice, and that stupid bottle of water <laughs> is one more good thing I've ever done. Just right from the very beginning, separate the memory from the emotions. Talk about it calmly. Yeah. And, you know, talk over beer, you know, until you get drunk, then it gets counterproductive. <laughs> right? you know, a couple of beers that with some friends can be very, very healthy. And, and this whole process of separating the memory from the emotions and and how, you know, how, how we reach out and gain control of this, these biological processes. Uh, so I'll give you an example now. Culture, cancel cultures come at me full speed. You yeah. know, the, the video game industry has always had me for, you know, public enemy number one, without a doubt. Yeah. Truly, number one on their, on, on their, their list. Uh, uh, the, the defund the police people, have, 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 you know, they said, get rid of all the cops, empty all the prisons, and it'll all be better. You know, these guys are not rational human yeah. beings. And, uh, and, uh, um, but I get hate mail from them. They're going to rape my dog and kill my family and all that good stuff. Now, I can't control what these idiots do. The only thing in the universe I can control is what? How I choose to respond. Yeah. So if this, if this nasty gram bothers me, then they win. So I, I've got some candy I let myself have, a, you know, a once a week or so, you know, just for a special occasion. And I get one of the nasty grams, I get a piece of candy. I almost look forward to it. <laughs> And, and you can you can see these people saying, yeah. "You evil bastard! You, we tell you, evil yard, and you get a chocolate covered cherry." Yeah. So, so who wins now? Yeah. And, and 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 so I tell my cops, you know, people say, "Well, they want to be a cop because they like to tell people what to do." <laughs> that is the single 
most ignorant and wrong statement you never have. Cops have people flipping them the finger, talking off to them. Hey, what are you going to do? Are you going to shoot me? You know, what did you stop me for? Cops catch more crap than anybody ever. And, and, and if your goal in life is to boss people around, don't be a cop because you got to put up with so much garbage. Yeah. And, and we live in a time when our cops are just, just steady. So I tell them, uh, I, I like putsy rolls. Uh, they're individually wrapped. They stay clean. They're good in the heat. They're good in the cold. The little little short ones, mm-hmm. they remind me of Halloween candy, you know. To have a little bag, whatever you want, but maybe Tootsie Rolls, or if you want, have a little bag, bag of Tootsie Rolls in the dash of the car, and you only get to have one when somebody's ugly to you. They give you the finger, you get a Tootsie Roll. They, they disrespect you, they mouth off, you get a Tootsie Roll. And what they meant to harm you that you turn into something positive. Remember, it's a game. If you lose your temper, you lose the game. And when you're kind of boiling with anger, you know, and you take that Tootsie Roll and you pop your mouth, you chew it up and you salivate, you know, under stress, you get dry mouth. And dry mouth is the opposite of salivation. When you eat, you see food, you salivate. So, you know, putting that thing in your mouth and salivating and chewing and drinking. But I had a cop tell me, he said, I'd be fat in a month. I had 10,000 Tootsie Rolls. I'd be fat in a month. He says, so I use Smarties. I got my little pack of Smarties, and they're my little chill pill. And he says, I reach down, I grab a little chill pill. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Regain control. Yeah. If I lose my temper, I lose the game. And that turkey is not going to make me lose the game. And so, you know, that, that's really the heart of it. Nobody respects our temper tantrum. But on a, on a biological level, it's kind of the next evolutionary step for us to gain full control of the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. To take the things that aren't under conscious control. And the baseline, you don't always have a Tootsie Roll. You don't always have a bottle of water. You can always stop and breathe. And the breathing exercise, I teach them a book on combat. Is, is I've got you know I've got hundreds of case studies organized by topics and of all the topics, the breathing is by far the largest. How the breathing saved my life and I used it here and I used that there, but just right now you're not consciously controlling your breathing. But stop right now, and breathe in through the nose. Breathe in, breathe in, breathe in. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Let it out. Let it out. Let it out. Let it out. Hold it, hold it, hold it. What did you just do? You just sold your breathing from unconscious to conscious control. And and if, as you reach out and control the breathing, everything else comes with it. The autonomic nervous system, the puppy inside, fight or flight, feed and breed. It, it, the breathing is a leash on the puppy. And you're yeah. actually reaching out and taking that whole puppy and bringing it under control with this leash, the breathing exercise. And, and, uh, and it's really valuable to count. In through the nose, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four. Out through the lips, two, three, four. And, and the process of counting is also a high-order process. My dog is really capable of counting to two, maybe three. Dogs count like this, one, two, a whole bunch. One, two, <laughs> A lot. Right. And, and, and they, they can't count past that. The, the very act of counting is bringing your rational brain back under control. And as you begin to re-experience the event, I tell cops, you know, you, you, you're, you're getting a witness statement from a victim of a crime. 
Now, if that individual becomes emotional, A, you don't need all that drama. B, they're moving down the path of mental illness. They're starting to associate the memory with the emotions. So put a bottle of water in front of them, just the power of a gift. Put a bottle of water in front of them, and every time they start to become emotional, make them stop, take a big swig of water, and they'll regain control. And from the very beginning, you will teach them the path to wellness, to separate the memory from the emotions. You can have all the symptoms of PTSD, and it's normal. It's only until you have it for at least 30 days that we say, okay, now it's crossed the line to something pathological. All the symptoms of PTSD are normal. It's only when it lasts at least 30 days we say, okay, we've crossed the line now. This is no longer a normal response. It's an abnormal response. Yeah. So we can deal with it. And we're very good at treating PTSD, by the way. But it's even better to, 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 to kind of blindside it ahead of time. Well, right from the very beginning, separate that memory from the emotion. Yeah. And, and cops tell me that they bring a suspect in, they give them a bottle of water. Now, where's this suspect at, right? Butterfly, I'm going to lie. I'm going to tell them nothing. I'm going to lie. I'm going to say nothing. They can't get me to say nothing. I'm going to say nothing. You get in that bottle of water, take a big swig of water. <sighs> Suddenly, they're down there in, 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 in feed and breed. You know, the, the parasympathetic backlash has kicked in. And cops say it's, it's truth serum. I mean, it's yeah. just truth serum. The bottle of water, the kindness, the drink, pulling them down to parasympathetic, they call it truth serum, you know, because all of a sudden this guy is not able to, to generate a good lie, you know. And, uh, and, and so this whole understanding, the sympathetic, parasympathetic, uh, autonomic nervous system control, how it turns into PTSD. I teach psychiatric grand rounds worldwide. But it all comes back to just self-control. Yeah. And using the tools that are available, that Tootsie Roll, that Smarty, that, that swig of water, the breathing exercise. Uh, nobody respects our temper tantrum. They respect our calm. Yeah. And, and of all those tools, the breathing exercise, I've been teaching it since the war began in, in 2002 to our military deploying. A lot of people take that square breathing 444 and, and teach it. And, uh, and, and uh, it's kind of like the whole sheepdog thing, except... Nobody's giving me credit. I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm good with that because all that matters is just saving lives and getting the word. Yeah, out there. yeah, for sure. I, I think as a layman, one of the best uh, uh, descriptions of of dealing with and treating uh, PTS. And and I'd love to hear your take on. I hear a lot of back and forth now with whether we should be calling it PTS or PTSD, uh, but actually comes from. And listeners are going to get so sick of this, I'm sure. But I'm a big fan of the show West Wing. I shouldn't be. I'm not their target market, but I was. The show was genius. Um, I don't know that I would have voted for President Bartlett, though I'd probably take him right now. But I love the show. It's great writing, and there's great moments, and there's great truths in it. And there's an entire episode dedicated to a psychiatrist from ADVA coming to the White House to treat one of the main characters who had been shot in a shooting incident. And he's struggling with PTSD, and of course, he's the last person to realize it, and he's acting out, and they're, they're kind of representing that. But he, he talks about you know the goal in treatment, as he's explaining it to this character, is what we're trying to get you to do is to be able to remember the experience without reliving the experience. And it just it was such an easy-to-grasp concept. Uh, you know, yes. and, and and they make probably a little more progress than you would typically make in a, you know an hour long session for someone with the first time because that's how well, much airtime they had. But 
Yeah, surprisingly, and there's something called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. And you're following a visual stimulus while you talk about what's happening. This is not something to go out there and wing. You want to be properly trained to do it properly. But this visual stimulus keeps the midbrain occupied. The, The fight or flight mechanism is busy. The puppy's out front chasing a ball in the front yard. And while you're following that visual stimulus, you're able to talk about what happened without the emotions coming along for the ride. Yeah. And very often, not always, but very often, people find EMDR works in just one session. So sometimes yeah. it takes years, sometimes one session, uh, but but it's not that really outrageous to think that we could make that difference in just one session. Now, I've seen, by uh, teaching people that. I've seen studies, Colonel, with um, success, uh, at least lowering the incidence of PTS using Tetris and having individuals play Tetris immediately or shortly after the traumatic event, would that be that same mechanism? Is that what probably what's, what's working there? I have no idea. I never heard about that. <laughs> I love that. I got, I'm going to go look it up, you know, and see what that's all about. But I can see that kind of reprogramming the brain and putting in a, a, an alternate set, uh, you know, at the lower levels, it would be really good to play Tetris and talk about what happened. Because, you know, that Tetris would be keeping the midbrain occupied yeah. while the forebrain is working its way through that. But we live in amazing times. You know, uh, uh, I had the honor to work with Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor. I trained the unit before and after the incident. Uh, most of your people know the story. Uh, his whole team's wiped out. He's captured. Yeah. He's tortured. Uh, uh, now, I was I'll, on Marcus' podcast. I'll tell you briefly. My, my regular listeners yeah. will know this. My son is named Marcus. He's named after two Marcuses, Marcus Luttrell and Marcus Aurelius. Oh, boy, what a great <laughs> – I met a guy recently, a podcaster named Marcus Aurelius Anderson. That oh, was his nice. real name. That's you awesome. Know, that's just so cool. <laughs> but uh, um, but I, I was on his podcast a while back, and, and Marcus gave me permission to talk about him. You know, as you can't talk about him. Unless, but I, I trained the unit before and after the incident. And uh, – and it, it was about a year after that incident, Marcus was back and, and regaining control. And, and his doc told me, I talk about post-traumatic stress. is like being overweight. Post-traumatic stress disorder is like being obese. It's debilitating. And there really is, you know, is it debilitating in some important aspect of your life? Has it lasted over 30 days? Is it debilitating some aspect of your life? So we use the word, we throw that D in far too lightly. Yeah. And there's a lot of value in talking about post-traumatic stress injury because you recover from an injury and you're usually stronger. I think it was, I think it was uh, uh, Hemingway said, life breaks everyone and usually we're stronger in the broken spots. Yeah. So uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder is like being obese. It's debilitating. And uh, Marcus Doc told me, he said, he came back from that incident a year ago and he was five hundred pounds PTSD, totally debilitated. Today, he's 50 pounds PTSD. He wanted to deploy again with his unit. He did. It was a good thing. And I was able to tell Marcus at the time, I said, look how far you've come in just the last year. Now, your doc tells me you came home, you were 500 pounds PTSD. Remember those days? Today, you're 50 pounds PTSD. Look how far you've come. Have confidence you can come farther. And today, Marcus will tell you, 100% 100% post-traumatic stress-free. Post-traumatic stress is a path to post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And that's the greatest generation. That's a World War II generation, post-traumatic growth. 
what I tell people, a man like Marcus Zutrell, and it, it took a couple of years, it wasn't easy, but a man like that can come back and be completely free of post-traumatic stress disorder, anyone can. Yeah. And, and that's our goal. And one of the most evil things out there is people saying that you're going to have to live with PTSD for a lifetime. Uh, you know, with medical level, medical technology moves on and, you know, no amount of money is worth a lifetime of mental illness, you know, get, get better and don't become invested in that illness uh, and, and just seek to get to be a better, stronger yeah. person come out the other end of post-traumatic growth. Where do you see the role for um, some of the, I don't want to say outlier treatments because they're really not anymore, but the ketamines and now the research around psychedelics, do you think that role is more when you're you're dealing with this stacked on top of physical injury with uh, yeah. the TBI. I know yeah. we've had uh, Sarah Wilkinson yeah. on the podcast uh, from the Step Up Foundation, Chad Wilkinson's, uh, you know, gold star yeah. widow. And uh, yeah. Chad, you know, yeah. sadly uh, died by suicide. But it was the uh, – uh, she's got all the science terms, but it, it was all the TL and TBI and the blast wave injuries and all the stuff they figure out that's going on and all these things that unfortunately right now – you know, the, the problem's a little bit ahead of our tech still where you can't identify these things until you're doing a post-mortem, yeah. but it does seem like we're seeing some real success with the psychedelics with, I, so. I know I think the data's there. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of the ketamine. I think the data's there. I think the research is there. It's got to be done properly. Uh, it is a legal psychedelic. Uh, it has been used billions of times. Uh, the dose that's being used is so much smaller than the dose that's usually used in an operation. Uh, it's one of the most widely used meds. Uh, what you see is kind of big pharma. You know, they're, they're, they're industries and they're trying to make money. And here's the ketamine that's just dirt cheap. They're not going to make any money off of ketamine. Yeah. So they're trying to invent this, this thing that does the same thing but doesn't have the side effects. Well, <laughs> the side effects of ketamine is just minimal. Uh, uh, that's, that's just bogus. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, I, I'm really a fan. Uh, you know, one of the things to think about when we talk about the therapeutic dynamic across the board and, and technology moves on, we're getting really good. The first off is, is a TBI. You know, in World War I, we called it shell shock. And they thought it was a physical concussion, what today we call TBI. And World War I, they said, you know, we had, we had these, these millions of psychiatric casualties that after... 60 days of artillery fire were destroyed, and we do the same thing in enemy cities. And they really thought that they would bomb London for a couple of months, and millions of gibbering lunatics would flee into the countryside, and they could defeat their will by bombing them. They really thought that. But then in World War II, we found out, no, it's not, it's not concussion. It's what we call combat fatigue, what today we might call PTSD. Well, now we know it's both. Yeah. We're able to kind of begin, and the symptoms of TBI, concussion, and the symptoms of PTSD have some real similarities. So seeking something that treats both of them. Uh, and for, first off, it's a major step forward to say, hey, it's both. Yeah. It's concussion and battle fatigue. It's, it's, it's TBI and PTS. And, uh, and, and you're right. We, we talk about PTS. We throw that PTSD. We throw that D in there far too lightly. You know, the D is a difference between a few pounds overweight and obese. You know, the, the, don't call people obese lightly. Don't call it post-traumatic stress disorder lightly. Yeah. You know, use those, use those terms carefully. But uh, I, I think the potential there 
the profound wellness is good. And, uh, and I'm eager to see what comes out of some of the other psychedelic dynamics. I, I think that though that the data is overwhelming, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a friend of some people who are doing some amazing work with the, with the ketamine. Uh, there's this major drive for the industry to say, well, we got to find a way to make money off of this. <laughs> You're making enough money off the weight loss drugs, guys. Yeah. Come on, don't be greedy. Yeah. Let them grab this thing and run with it. But while we're talking about suicide and post-medic stress and recovery, uh, one of the things I'd really like to share, union listeners, is the idea of a, of a service dog. Uh, I lost a brother and two nephews to suicide. And one of my nephews was a, was a war veteran, a veteran of this war, a Marine vet, and took his life. And I think it would never have happened if he had had a service dog. Uh, and the service dog is just such a valuable thing we give them. But right now, the only thing available is a Rolex. You, you can't get a service dog for under twenty thousand yeah. dollars. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying a Rolex. There's nothing wrong with selling a Rolex. But we need a Timex, and we need it right now. Yeah. And we need it in the hands of millions of people. And what I tell people is, I'm, my wife has had two service dogs, and uh, and uh, they've, they've been of enormous value to her. We really learned the service dog process. We learned the world. There's no great certification program out there. There's no great regulation on what is or is not a service dog. Yeah. And people can abuse that. But, but the thing to understand is human beings are pack animals. We're not meant to be alone. And so are dogs. Look, you got one dog, you leave him home alone. It's solitary confinement. It's one of the most evil things you could do to your dog. Yeah is leave one dog alone. You got two dogs, leave them at home, they're fine. Think of prison, right? You got two guys in a cell, they're good. You put them in solitary confinement, it's torture. Yeah. The same thing true of your dogs, and it's true of us. We're not meant to be alone. And so that dog is always with you. They go to the bathroom with you. I mean, you go to the bathroom with them, they go with you. Uh, they go to the restaurant with you. Get a dog, train them well. Don't let them embarrass you. Yeah. Get professional level training. What a couple of hundred bucks is how much that yeah. would cost to go to a good training class and and train them well. Well, and with that service, even on them, uh, with that on them, resources take them like uh, I don't know if you've crossed paths with uh, Mike Ritland's, but but Mike Ritland is a he was a uh, served in the teams. He's a dog guy. He's still training dogs, and his resources for the layman for dog training, both you know online subscription and written form. Yeah. Are fantastic. Very reasonable. But, yeah. Well, and you mentioned reasonable price. Yeah. You, you, yeah. I remember. Buy a roller. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and you yeah. mentioned Marcus. I remember when Marcus first came on my radar because of the book and before the movie, you couldn't separate him from his Labrador Retriever. Now, yeah. there's a sad story there that led to more trauma in that. Uh, and Marcus has told that story a few different places. You can go and find it. But yeah. some good old boys decided they were going to take some pot shots at a dog and boy, did they pick the wrong dog? I, I still, I'll never understand how or why he didn't yeah. kill those guys that night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I've met him one time at a, at a book signing uh, here in Fort Pierce near the uh, Navy SEAL Museum here. And uh, it was this follow-up service dog, but it was another yellow yeah. lab. I think yeah. God might have put labs on this planet to be service dogs. They might come Amen. come Amen. out of the womb as service uh, dogs to begin with. My wife, my wife's last service dog was a was we we, we got kind of a deal on it. Um, I, I'm active with the, with an organization doing great work called This Able Veteran, and uh, they're training service dogs. And this dog had been had been a, a breeder. She'd had uh, like 
four litters of puppies, all of whom were selected or screened to be service dogs. And, uh, and then she was spayed and became a service dog. And, and this dog, her name is Isa. And Isa had never had a person uh, until my wife. You know, she'd been, she'd been responsibly bred and cared for, and, uh, but she never had a person. And it's the most beautiful thing to see how those two come together and how that dog bonds together. But I, I, I want everybody to have a Timex. I'm, I, there's nothing wrong. And I presented at a law enforcement uh, suicide conference a while back called the, the Wounded Blue Conference in Las Vegas. And there were all kinds of dog providers there, and they were in full agreement. There's nothing wrong with the Rolex. There's nothing wrong with selling the Rolex. But that shouldn't get in the way of having a Timex. Yeah. And, and you don't have to pay all those dollars. Just get a good dog and, and you know, a golden retriever, a, a lab. Uh, uh, like you said, uh, the labs are, are really good. People don't, they're, you know, they're, 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 and they will still defend you. They'll watch your six and they'll cover your back. But they'll get you up in the morning and they get you outside. Yeah. There's so much value in just stepping outside and taking a deep breath in the morning. And that dog will get you out there. Yeah. Boss, we got to go. I'm going to crap on the floor and yeah. it's your fault. Well, yeah. and, <laughs> it, you know, the benefits, oh, okay. it, it's funny how many things that we ought to be doing have carry on second yeah. order, third order, fourth order. Yeah. And so, yes. you know, way back here in the podcast, we were talking about sleep and Andrew Huberman, going back to him, has done such a great job of, of teaching through his podcast how important exposure to morning sunlight is for your circadian rhythm, for your sleep patterns. Well, guess what? The rain, shine, sunlight, the dog's going to be outside in the morning, yes. and you might yeah. as well go with them. Yeah. yeah, and you walk out there with your cup of coffee or your, your cup of uh, uh, Jocko Lift, and, uh, <laughs> and, and you got your dog in the morning, and uh, and it's a win-win. Yeah. You know, it really is. There's, and like you said, second and third order effects, when we start doing the right thing health-wise, that they, they start piling on. But it's these negative spin cycles we can spin into. But we want to start these positive cycles. Yeah. You know, and, and, and these are the things we can do. And, uh, and having, having that dog that's never away from you, put that vest on them. And, uh, you know, the only things legally they can ask, is that a service dog and hasn't been trained to provide service to you? And both answers are, are yes. They, they have no right to ask any other question legally than that. Uh, there's no big certification program out there. There's no big mystery. Just get a good dog. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I've, had, I've heard over and over again how the service dog prevented suicides. Yeah. I couldn't do that to my dog. Well, Just couldn't do that. I will add the caveat, though. Let's stick with dogs. Maybe stay away from the uh, service peacocks, <laughs> the, the service <laughs> potbelly pigs. Everyone is great. I right, know something else about service dogs. You know what? I, 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 I'm in airports 26 years on the road now, uh, 200 days a year, training cops in all 50 states, you know. One or two nights at home, my, my, my bride of 48 years, my high school sweetheart waiting for me, you know, conjugal visit, clean underwear, back on the road. But I, I see service dogs in airports all the time, and they're not having fun. And, I, you know, dogs are, no, dogs are happy. Yeah. A service dog, what, what I didn't realize until my wife got a dog is they're working. Don't bother me. I, I can't eat while I got that vest on. I can't pee while I got that vest on. Nobody's going to pet me while I got that vest on. I'm at work. And when you see that dog with that vest on, they are truly a working dog. Yeah. And the big rule is they don't they 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 can't pee with that vest on. You know they can't get lovings other than you. You know you give them lovings and support. Nobody else is going to do it while that vest is on. They're not going to eat while that vest is on, other than a couple of treats. You know the, the, the conditioning treats. Uh, but they're working, and you take that vest off, and they are a completely different creature. 
But but it just gives you so much more respect for that dog. You see that dog run through the airport. He's not a happy dog. Uh, you know, bomb dogs are happy dogs. Yeah. A bomb dog, you know, we teach them with the ball, and they're just hunting the ball. And bomb dogs are just goofy happy dogs. They're not working dogs. Uh, they're just out there finding the ball because the ball smells like a bomb. And now, ah, look, I found it. But uh, they're doing what they love to do. But the service dog is a true working dog. Yeah. And the relationship you build with that dog, and, and I just tell everybody, go out there and get a Timex. You know, get a good dog, train them well. Don't let them embarrass us. And and no, I don't want you to bring your service peacock or your service <laughs> pony. God bless you. They, you know, they, they don't fit mm-hmm. under the table in the restaurant. They're not coming with you to Walmart, but that dog will. Yeah. And people love it. That's good. And people have such a positive response. That's why the whole sheepdog thing has taken off is, you know, we're in a culture that really loves dogs. and. And that's a good thing. It's a positive yeah, thing. for sure. So taking things back a little bit, and, and we'll, we'll kind of tie things to, together here. Um, you know, you're you're enlisted into the Army. Um, I, I'd be interested kind of what the draw to Rangers and Ranger School was oh. for you, because uh, I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point, thanks to books and TV and movie, that a Ranger School, no walk in the park. Uh, it is not summer oh. summer camp. Um, and then beyond that, uh, what was the impetus to to make the leap from enlisted and, and head to OCS? Yeah. Well, you know, when, when I was growing up, I read a lot of Robert A. Heinlein's books. Uh, I was a science fiction fan. I read it all. And Heinlein had a profound impact on a generation with his, his juveniles or his books. And uh, uh, his later books, he, he, he had a stroke and he got kind of goofy, but, but boy, he wrote some great books. And one of them was Starship Troopers. And the only redeeming value of the movie Starship Troopers was that, you know, it might make somebody read the book. You know, it was a, but uh, the Starship Troopers had this, this stunning effect on me. Now, my whole family had been in the military, and I always knew I was going to be in the military. Uh, we went to my first day at school was first grade. Didn't go to kindergarten. I went to first grade. Teacher, you know, icebreaker teacher said, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a soldier. That's all I ever wanted to do. That's all I ever wanted to be. And. Then I retired 26 years ago, and I train them every day, and I'm out there working with them every day. My wife says I, I move from one uniform to another, you know. But then I, I I read a lot. I heard a lot. I got war stories from all my relatives, and uh, and I'd heard about being a paratrooper. An uncle was a paratrooper. And as soon as I heard that was available, I thought, you know, starship troopers, you know, jumping from spaceships and paratroopers and being the alert and being the elite and I thought, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be a soldier and I want to be a paratrooper. I went 82nd Airborne. And I, it was the single best thing that ever happened to me. I cannot communicate to you what it means to be with a group of individuals jumping out of a plane. The existential trust that comes with leaping out that plane and all those other idiots with you. And then you do it in the middle of the night. Yeah. You know, all, all people are, oh, all, all jumps are night jumps. Your eyes are closed, you know, but <laughs> but, but not really. But uh, but but just, just being with this band of brothers who were all jumping out of that plane together, I I, I, I just, it's I, I recommend it to anybody. Uh, we're bonded together tight, you know, and, and we're all got this existential trust. Uh, my dad, you know, he, he's, he was an MP and, and they taught him, said, you know, watch out for the Marines. They think they're tough. And Watch out for the paratroopers because they are tough. (laughs) But they fear nothing. They fear nothing. You learn to totally, completely fear nothing and uh, have this existential trust. And and there's enormous power and value in that. 
But in Starship Troopers, uh, the, the main character goes to OCS and becomes an officer. And that had always been in the back of my mind. And there was a time the Forcecom officers reading list uh, had two science fiction books on it for year after year. One was Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, and the other one was Starship Troopers. And there was a time when any 10 infantry officers were together, five of them were tired to shove Starship Troopers down the throat of the other five. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a deeply influential and very powerful and good book. It had a great impact on me. I went in knowing I wanted to go to OCS, knowing I wanted to follow that path. I was a E-5 in the 82nd Airborne, uh, and I really felt deeply respected. The young troops came in. They looked up to me. I was a fairly senior E-5. They'd known me as a sergeant. I was, I, I was battalion ops NCO, and, uh, and, and I really loved that. I became a lieutenant, and it was almost a step down, you know, and, right. uh, until I became captain, but it, it was a good ride. It was a good path. I went to OCS. I spent the rest of my career trying to get back to the 82nd. Never did. <laughs> I was in some really great units doing awesome things. Uh, uh, the, the 9th Infantry High Tech Test Bed in Fort Lewis, Washington. Then the, then the 7th Infantry Division, uh, uh, Light Infantry Division Test Bed. And we did some great things. We had some great people and great troops and awesome stories came out of it. And and, and my 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 generation was the Cold War. Nothing happened, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, but we 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 stayed ready and we kept the Russians off. A great achievement was the war that didn't happen. Uh, and and it was a good ride. And I just recommend it to everybody. Yeah. You know what? Um, right now, the current administration and what happened in Afghanistan is it kicking the nuts to anybody that's ever been there. Uh, it's just like abandoning Vietnam when we did. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a dynamic on that, you know. In the in the 1960s, we'd been in Europe for 20 years, and if we had left Germany, if we'd abandoned Europe, the Russians would have owned them in a month. In the 1970s, we'd been in Korea for 20 years. If we left Korea, the North Koreans would have owned them in a month. And in the early 70s, late 60s, we'd been in Vietnam for 20 years. And if we abandoned them, uh, the communists would own them, and they did. And we were in Afghanistan for 20 years, and we abandoned them, and they did. So it's almost like you got to be determined to hang around for 40 years to really be able to, to hang with it. You know, we're still in Korea. We're still in, in Germany. Heck, we're still in Guantanamo Bay, and we took that the Spanish-American War, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we've got to be determined to hang in there for the long haul to really make a difference. But this current administration... Uh, I've got a grandson who's in. He's doing good things. Uh, but I saw what happened uh, when Ronald Reagan became president. Uh, the, the military was broken. Uh, the druggies ran the barracks. I, I hated bullies. Uh, and in the barracks, if you didn't do drugs, you had to fight. And I fought, and I fought a lot. Uh, you know, if, if you just did drugs, you'd be, hey, you're cool. You're not a threat to them. If you didn't want to do drugs, you're a threat to them. And they ran the barracks and the and the dirt bags. You'd have a you'd have a stack of Article 15s and Council Statement an inch thick, and you couldn't get rid of them. Yeah. And the idea was the military was a form of social mobility. And it was our job to give these people, these repressed individuals, this opportunity, and you couldn't get rid of them. And, and by the way, we didn't have anybody, you know, out, out of the average infantry company, one platoon was zeroed out. Of the two remaining platoons, both had a squad zeroed out. So an infantry company, which should be, nine infantry squads 
was four infantry squads. I mean, it was just, we were hollow. We were broken and we couldn't keep those full. Ronald Reagan became president. The year analysis program went in. We got the druggies out of the barracks. We, We got the expeditions discharged. But most of all, great Americans were willing to sign on and come join us. And it just was the most amazing, single most amazing thing I have ever seen was how we could pivot on a dime. Yeah. I was there in the bad times. I was there in the good times. It was an amazing thing to see. I tell everybody, have faith in our nation, have faith in our way of life. I don't know who the next Ronald Reagan will be, but I, I pray that God has somebody there that's going to take charge that we can trust and we can rally behind and, uh, and, and move away from our current, you know, woke, semi-woke, <laughs> semi-broken military, uh, not to emphasize the negatives because yeah. there's good people doing a good job, but, uh, uh, just have faith in our way of life. I've seen it happen. I love my career. I wouldn't do anything different. Uh, it's been a it's been a glorious ride, and, and now here we are. You know, uh, fifty years later, that I was I was on an oil rig. You know, in in uh, in, in the Van Nettles, Nebraska, thirty below, standing out there doing twelve hour shifts seven days a week. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I turned eighteen in August of seventy four and uh, joined the army and never looked back. You know, and then my little bride joined me, but I I, I asked cops. Why do we stay in the fight? Retention is down. Recruiting is down. And, and I, I begin my presentation by saying, what's the opposite of evil? And the opposite of evil is love. Evil is the absence of love, just as darkness is the absence of light. And we fight evil with love. And I told him, I can't, I can't say why you hang in the fight, but I'll tell you why I hang in the fight. Went at home for me as my bride of 48 years, my high school sweetheart. She was... Uh, she was 15. I was 17 when I proposed to her. We are from Arkansas. <laughs> and two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. I get home one or two nights a week, conjugal visit, clean underwear. Because the only people on earth more precious than my bride are my children, my grandchildren, and a blink of an eye, my great-grandchildren. And we believe if we love our family, if we love our God, if we love our nation, we'll keep 100%. That's what love means. Love means the worse it gets, the harder you fight. And, and that's what I'm doing right. I'm knee deep in the fight. And, and fighting with a ranger is kind of like re- wrestling with a pig. Everybody gets dirty, but the pig likes it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and so the video game industry, come on, you know, come and get it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and, the, and the cop haters, you know, attacking, okay, come on. Uh, and what's the only thing in the universe I can control? It's how I choose to respond. And if I quit, those bastards win. Yeah. So my message to everybody out there is we love our nation. We love our way of life. Uh, stay in the fight. Run that podcast. Be that guest on that podcast. Run that business. Stand up for virtuous, honorable, patriotic services. Believe in our nation. Believe in our way of life. But here's, here's the final point. In the end, everybody's going to die. In the end, eventually, all nations fall over my dead body. In the end, our son will die. But eternity continues. And if you got a remote idea, there might be an eternity, that there might be life after this life, then you got to agree that it is the single most important thing in the universe. And my book on spiritual combat lays the foundation for that. And, I, and now the book on spiritual warfare came out, introduced the idea of being God's faithful sheepdog, being the sheepdog. And Will Rogers said, if you get to be in a, think you're a man of some influence, Try telling another man's dog what to do. <laughs> and have you ever done that? You tell a dog what to do, and he looks at you, and, and, and if he could talk, this is what the dog would say. He said, I don't know much. I'm just a dog. 
I know this. I'm not your dog. <laughs> and when you belong to God, you can look at the evil one and say, I'm not your dog. You have no authority over me. And in the end, it's uh, all the bad things that happen out there that 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 gives us the great perspective, uh, that spiritual perspective. How everybody dies. Uh, it's okay to come to prayer to God for everything. Uh, bad things happen, but God gives people the the choice to make their own decision. You say, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I sent you, and that's our job. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. In normal warfare, we win by killing the enemy. In this warfare. We end by saving them. We win by saving them. That's good. So that's that. That's the big picture in a nutshell, and uh, and where I, I think we can find our greatest peace and our greatest hope. Absolutely, man. That's good. Well, Colonel, I I could do this for I'm ballparking probably another five hours. <laughs> well, but I mean, uh, uh, want to be respectful of your time. Want to be respectful of the listeners. Yeah. I mean, I we I could do a few hours for each book. Uh, I, I, I just so enjoy speaking with you. So honored to have you take the time out and uh, come and talk with me and uh, and my listeners. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Has anyone ever come to you and said, hey, Colonel, what about writing this book? And you said no. Have you ever turned down a book? <laughs> well, you know, what I've often said is, uh, why don't you write that book? Yeah. Or we can co-author that book, but you need to take the lead. Yeah. And, and many of my books have turned out that way. I've, I've got I've got over a dozen published books, but uh, I, I've got a lot of great co-authors. Yeah. Well, and I feel like we've, I tell yeah. Well, we've just scratched the surface. We didn't get any into any non nonfiction. Yeah. Of course, yeah. one of the, when I first uh, when your name first ever crossed uh, my desk, so to speak, uh, was you on with Glenn Beck? I don't even know what network he was on at the time. I can't remember if that was Blaze or when he was on. Uh, yeah. CNN or, or what, and you've co-authored with Glenn and so many others on top of, of your own stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah. just, I mean, I, I could sit and dig in with, with you on any of them and, uh, and hopefully we'll get the chance to, uh, you know, one of these days, we'll, we'll just get into some Let's of the books it. would be an absolute uh, oh. joy. And I talk to everybody, but we live in a time where there's room for lots of books, write that book. And, you know, a page a day is a book a year. That's easy to say. It ain't so easy to do. But uh, but even if your grandkids are only ones that read the book, write that book. It's one of the most important things you can do. It should be on everybody's bucket list to just write that book. Absolutely. And, and start keeping those notes now. And, and, and it'll be one of the most rewarding things you'll ever do. And every book is a ticket in the lottery. And, and it might be a multi-million copy bestseller. I mean, you, you never know if you don't have a ticket. There you, you go. Know, you, if you don't have a book, you, you can't play the game. So we could talk about the whole book process and uh, encourage everybody to write that book. And uh, meanwhile, thanks. It's it's an honor to be on board with you. It truly is. The Bible says, you know, as one person uplifts and as iron sharpens iron, so does one man uplift another. And this has really been an iron sharpens iron moment, brother. And I thank you. And uh, and and I think you definitely rate a, 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 an eight, a nine. Oh, that's yeah. that's going on. That's above, going on the accolades. That. That's going in the above that, that that's college. Yeah, you're well above that solid seven. All right, well, you're up there shooting for that ten. You're doing good. That's stuff. going in the promote. That's going on the back of the book, Colonel. <laughs> so, well, I thoroughly appreciate you, sir. And uh, my microphone is your microphone. You're you're welcome back here anytime. God bless you and God bless America. <laughs> bless, you, Colonel. Thank you, sir. And with that, 
the Lieutenant Colonel has left the studio. Man, what an honor to get to talk with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on this week's podcast. And what an honor to have you, the listeners, with us for the last couple of hours. Always appreciate you tuning in. And hey, listen, if you haven't already, whatever app you are on, hit that subscribe button, the follow button, maybe give us a, a little review, a five-star rating, a thumbs up. All of that uh, just really helps to boost the podcast to help others find us. And uh, also, if you haven't already, maybe stop by the website, solid7podcast.com. That's solid, the number seven podcast.com, where you can always find links to the latest episode, like the one you just enjoyed right now, as well as all of our merch, Solid 7 Podcast patches, links to our affiliates at GoRuck, Origin Main, Jocko Fuel, Tuttle Twins, all kinds of great stuff there, all of our social media. And if you're feeling froggy, you can even become a Patreon supporter right there from our website. And with that, listeners, we love you. We'll see you next week. We're out. The Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today. And you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order, get on the path, and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.